Welcome everyone to episode two of Middle School Music with Dario Duet and Farhan Lalji. Dario, how are you doing this morning? Kanye didn't drop. I think that might be a phrase we might hear several times on this podcast. Were you really looking forward to the new Kanye album this morning? I was in two minds. It was debatable whether the album would release. I heard a, a leaked snippet. It was about 15 seconds of one of the tracks earlier this week. Sounded interesting. But today is Friday, and guess what? No new music from Kanye. But it's funny, isn't it? Because even though he doesn't release a new album that people were waiting for, he's still making news, right? Like, we're still talking about Kanye. And that's the genius of Kanye being Kanye, isn't it? That's why some people think that this was intended. Create some hype, and who knows? It will just make the album blow up when it does get released. Well, we did get a new DaBaby album, and we did get new Music Friday that had a couple of tracks, and we have some differing opinions on that that we'll get to later. <laughs> on that note, it's a good time to go into our one big thing. So our one big topic today is copyright infringement, creativity, licensing, and how artists gain inspiration and how other artists might think that that's theft. Uh, Dario, can you talk a little bit about some of the instances we've seen of challenges around creativity in the music industry? Sure. So we've seen this pop up time and time again over the years. What is most relevant today in the media is the Led Zeppelin case where they've supposedly copied the, or there's been an infringement on the copyright of Taurus, which was an instrumental released in 1968 by a less famous group called Spirit. Um, to relate to more modern times, the likes of Katy Perry has been ordered to pay a large sum of money for her most popular hit, which is Dark Horse, due to copyright infringement relating to certain elements of the instrumentals behind a Christian rap track. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you see some of these smaller time artists, uh, whether it's groups like Spirit or groups like the Christian hip hop group that sued Katy Perry, but you also see some more established artists getting into this as well, right? Like, I mean, there's the the case where Ed Sheeran was sued by by Marvin Gaye's estate. Um, I find that super fascinating because you know who's to say they weren't uh, influenced or inspired by some artists, like whether it's Marvin Gaye or Michael Jackson or Prince or some of the old-time artists, how do you actually say that what's inspiration versus what, what's actually theft? Well, this is what's so fascinating because in certain genres of music, this is, it's, it's, it's a common place for the evolution of this process. So what was interesting is that the Marvin Gaye estate has not only, is now not only in the process of, of suing Ed Sheeran, but they sued Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams for the Blurred Lines uh, release back in 2013. And both Thicke and uh, Pharrell Williams were ordered to pay to the sum of around $5 million US dollars, which has been brought down since the appeal. But what was very interesting was that in court, right, Thicke played a piano medley of U2's With or Without You, The Beatles' Let It Be, Ulphaville's Forever Young, Bob Marley's No Woman, No Cry, and Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror. And what was the point? It was to show the jury that many songs can share similar chords or melodies without being copies. Yeah, and we see this in fashion, right? Like there's the whole uh, fast fashion uh, challenge, right? For traditional high street brands or the um, upper uh, echelons in terms of the very creative brands. You know, you see 
brands like uh, Misguided or uh, ASOS or others kind of looking for inspiration in other fashion industries. And you don't see that level of theft or kind of IP conflict. I think the fashion industry has tried to kind of narrow down that this is a season's trend, this is a season's color, and trying to allow for license for multiple creative facets to leverage that kind of trend. Now, the music industry doesn't have that same kind of uh, cooperation between artists or competition between artists and who can do that color best. Um, and instead, what you get is artists trying to compete and other estates. Uh, also, because I wonder how much uh, streaming plays a role in this, right? Because the Marvin Gaye estate was probably making a lot of money from the actual selling of Marvin Gaye records year after year after year. And as they've seen uh, their record sales maybe go down now with the uh, prevalence of streaming. I wonder if these are now, like we talked about last week, coming up with new kind of revenue challenges for these estates. And so what do they do? Well, they think, well, hey, these other artists have been inspired by us. Maybe we need to sue them and recoup some revenue that way. Well, to me, Farhan, it can come across as quite predatory and opportunistic. Why? Because in the content economy, we now have exposure and opportunity to listen to an influx of records that are produced by a variety of unknown artists who, if they put that record out, which may sound similar hmm. to something that's popularly released, and then they just push the legal button. You know, Drake faced criticism for Hotline Bling because it sounded like Dram's uh, song titled Cha-Cha, which was released a month earlier. I'm not sure if you remember yeah. that. And Drake's argument was that he brought up that that form of copying is customary in Jamaican dancehall music. Now, just bear with me here, but if you think of something like TikTok, right? Mm. In, in today's world, TikTok videos blow up or go viral because one person has come up with a trend or an idea and everybody else tends to copy it. And what's so fascinating about that platform's model is that people enjoy watching how other people think of or interpret that that video or that concept but in the music space it's just an opportunity to make more money that's really interesting i mean i remember growing up in toronto and i can kind of relate to what drake's talking about in terms of that dance hall rhythm right like if you go back and you look at i believe it's like reggae gold from like 1993 to 1998 they had a, a new compilation album every year for those years and you'll know that there was one popular rhythm that was there that year and every dancehall artist was basically recording on top of that rhythm. And so you would get your Sean Pauls, your Beanie Mans, your other artists that were popular in dancehall all recording on the same track. And that made it great for DJs who would use that rhythm and then layer on track after track and mix after mix. And it's quite interesting because actually taking that to modern day, uh, there's a new track by uh, Jason Derulo called Too Hot. And it literally lifts Murder, She Wrote from Shakadimus and Pliers and that exact rhythm. And I was playing it for my daughter. You know, there's the, the necessary daughter mention. Uh, I think we, we came in pretty early this time. Uh, but yeah, I was playing that for my daughter and her mind was blown that those tracks were exactly the same kind of bass line, exactly the same drum beat, exactly the same music underneath, but yet they sounded so different. And I think that level of creativity and building on top of that is something we need to keep allowing for in music. But if the law, if kind of other artists get in the way of that, I struggle to kind of see how artists are going to be able to create anything new from an inspiration perspective and still be able to know that they're going to capture the commercial value of their creation. 
Well, there needs to be an overhaul to some degree. You're starting to see that when these, when the verdicts are, are handed down or judgment is handed down on some of these cases, it's typically been decided by a jury that might not be educated in the space or have context. And, and sure, we're referring here specifically to the US legal system. Uh, but in the case of the, the blurred lines debate, it was decided upon by sheet music. Hmm. Now, what I find fascinating is that the Trump administration is involving themselves in the Led Zeppelin case to try and or to, to speak about overhauling these copyrights because what happened in the case of, of Led Zeppelin is that before 1978, people had to submit a copyright deposit or a deposit copy. Now, what would happen with songs that were typically recorded prior to then is that people would put together a deposit copy that would only have maybe certain elements of an instrumental or of a, a written song, right? So let's say take a song being 100%, maybe only 3% or 40% or whatever uh, has been actually recorded on the deposit copy. So when it comes to actually challenging this in courts, Led Zeppelin's turned around and said, well, you know, we might be borrowing elements X, Y, and Z, but the deposit copy only refers to elements A, B, and C. It's crazy. I mean, how complicated it has to get in terms of uh, managing the creative license that artists can take. Uh, I was listening to uh, the Mogul podcast from Gimlet Media on Spotify uh, earlier this week, and they had this interesting um, uh, event that they were talking about Two Life Crew, and one of the producers of uh, Me So Horny by True Life <laughs> Crew in 1989 uh, talked about how actually it was Full Metal Jacket from the 1970s. And what he had to do in 1989 was wait for that movie to come on on cable, record it on his VCR, take that to the production studio, click and link his VHS or VCR to the production equipment, isolate that line of me, me so horny, me love you long time. And that became the basis of the billion dollar industry that is Miami based hip hop. Right. And now, you know, that's definitely not the way the makers of full metal jacket thought that some of their art, some of their creativity was going to be used. And so if you stop artists from being able to lift, if you stop artists from being able to, to gain that kind of creative edge, is the art going to suffer in the long term? I think that's the challenging question. So I'm glad you mentioned this. Here's an interesting case, right? So for those of you who are EDM fundies or like dance music, you had Steve Angelo release Teasing Mr. Charlie in 2006. Now, this is something I recognized in, in around 2010, 2011. Just bear with me. So Steve Angelo releases Teasing Mr. Charlie, right? Five years later, Afrojack, sorry, four years later, in 2010, Afrojack releases a song called Pasha on Acid. Now, to give some context, Afrojack was asked by David Guetta to play in Ibiza with him at the FMIF closing party. And uh, Afrojack felt inspired by Steve Angelo's release. And so he decided to draw on elements of Teasing Mr. Charlie and produced Pasha on Acid. Now, if you listen to the two tracks, they sound almost identical. Then LMFAO comes along you know, the one hit wonders and released Sexy and I Know It in 2011 and listen to the three tracks. They're almost identical, but there was no legal case that came from this. Sure. Afrojack released Pasha on Acid on Steve Angelo's label, which I'm, I'm sure helped the cause, 
But the LMFAO angle is interesting. And you've seen this time and time again with EDM as the, the industry started to explode. And what, what I've noticed, which is common amongst all these cases, is that is as soon as you move from a niche um, genre into the pop space, or as soon as a niche genre becomes part of the pop space at the intersection of the two, this is where you hit murky waters. So you saw Leona Lewis released Collide on Simon Cowell's Psycho Records in 2011, which actually has striking resemblance to Avicii's Penguin track or to what is commonly known as Fade Into Darkness. And um, that was done, you know, that wasn't authorized by Avicii's management. And retrospectively, they have to go back and then change songwriter names, et cetera, et cetera. And you've seen Mark Ronson with Uptown Funk has had to do that as well, add songwriters on six months later. Same as with Sam Smith had to add or credit Tom Petty to, to, to one of his tracks. And Beyonce did it with a majority of her Lemonade tracks just to ensure that there weren't any legal ramifications on top of that. But what I find also um, was a strange situation was when Artie and Matt Zoe, which are EDM artists, released a record. And, and Will I Am was producing his record in 2013, put a track out, I think it's called Let It Go or Let's Go. And he approached Artie and Matt Zoe to use the track and they turned around and said no. That track was called Rebound, by the way. And so he just decided, well, I'm just going to use the track anyway. And it's because, you know, I, I justify my actions because I really like the track. So it's about instead of uh, asking for permission, it, it's that simple. It's interesting. You make that point about niche industries, right? And I, we were talking earlier about the dance hall uh, rhythms, right? And I think there is kind of within the niche, probably that same level of collaborative com competition, right? So you can still be competitive with each other, but you can also be collaborative, right? You can say, I'm going to release this into the world and I'm going to hope that somebody's going to remix this, is going to layer on top of it, is going to build on what I've done. It's when the numbers in terms of the actual kind of uh, commercial value of these songs really blow up that artists come out of the woodwork and it leans more towards competition than collaboration. And I think that's the challenge with this whole industry. Sure. The Peloton case, for me... Can you give some context on the Peloton case for people? Sure. So what Peloton did, uh, for people that aren't familiar with it, they first launched a, a, sp a spinning bike or exercise bike for your home um, that uh, has a, a large screen in front of it and you can log on and you, you could enter into a live class and there'd be leaderboards, etc. That's just at a very high level. But Peloton just, uh, they found that it was such a hassle to get copyright to use songs so they just went ahead and uh, used the songs illegally. It's interesting, right? Like Zumba had the same kind of thing where they were taking Latin music and dance music and then they were putting it in Zumba classes. And then all of a sudden the artists wanted to make Zumba music. So you'd hear kind of artists like J Balvin or the equivalent in their early days shouting out in the middle or Pitbull or whoever, Zumba, because they <laughs> knew that those songs were going to get played in the Zumba classes. And they actually wanted it to be played there because then it would get put on a compilation CD or a compilation playlist. And then all of a sudden more and more people were listening to those songs. So on the same side where Peloton has kind of tried to circumvent some of the legality of actually grabbing music and putting on their platform, you get other kind of opportunities where these distribution channels get so popular that it actually makes sense for the artists to collaborate with that. So Dario, 
you spent some time looking at some interesting music-related tech startups. Uh, anything that jumps to mind in terms of things that you've seen that are of interest? Yes, there's an app called Tully, which was actually created by up-and-coming rapper Joyner Lucas. And what it is, is a solution that allows recording artists and songwriters to play, write, and record song ideas all within one application. So it's an end-to-end creative platform. And why, why, do, why do artists need an end-to-end collaborative or music creation platform? Well, essentially, I think because we're in this mobile-first world where everyone's always on the go, it provides an opportunity to really continue to work on your album or your individual releases at any point in time, work with producers or different parties all in one consolidated format. Because as you know, you know, back in the day, you'd have to sit in a studio, then it evolved with the internet where people could share things on, uh, on the cloud. Uh, but there's some security risk there on the cloud. So what Tali also tries to achieve is they've created this digital marketplace where producers are able to showcase and sell their digital assets to other artists, as well as manage that workflow of song creation in that collaborative environment. But you see, whilst the app is intriguing, the issue for me is it's this you know, this platform that's supposedly secure and you're able to, to produce a song end-to-end, which is great. And it prevents leaks. That's the, that's the main goal, the intention there in, a, in, in, in today's industry where leaks are commonplace. The issue is that when you take those tracks and if you're signed to a label, when you want to get that album pressed or released on any streaming platform, that's when those songs become vulnerable. Now, what's, what I find is the case or what's happened with, with Joyner Lucas is that while he's recorded most of the ADHD album, which is yet to be released, through Tully, some of those songs were leaked and some snippets were leaked, despite the fact that the app is meant to prevent that. Yeah, at the end of the day, it comes down to people, doesn't it? Um, I remember hearing the stories of Gnarls Barkley when they were getting started and CeeLo Green talking about how he would just record in MP3 format and kind of email the content over. And you didn't get the leak because the people were in that trusted circle, right? So they would kind of exchange the MP3s. They would kind of use traditional kind of digital communication channels like email, um, probably before the, the days of WhatsApp. But you could still exchange individual to individual if you had that trusted network. And I think that's where applications like Tully might actually let artists down because there's still the disconnect between Tully and the distribution, right? So you don't actually get to all the channels. You still have to give the content to the label. You have to give the content to somebody who's going to upload it at some point. And is that where these things are falling down from the artists and that's why leaks are happening? It is. And I think you're starting to see more kind of music tech businesses come onto the scene that are trying to handle the distribution elements as well to try and mitigate these risks. But until somebody is actually able to present a viable solution that's not only attractive to artists, labels, and streaming platforms, this problem will continue to arise. I think that's really interesting if we contrast that with the almost total opposite end of the spectrum where you have these beat making sites now, right? Where an artist in terms of a producer can record a beat, uh, buy a, a drum beat, layer that with an orchestra sound, use GarageBand and put in a piano, a piano riff and then publish it onto their, their publishing sites. 
Yeah, I know. You're going to make fun of that. Go on. <laughs> Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves. <laughs> I got my Keanu Reeves mixed up with my piano riffs. The blue pill or the red pill? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, we've seen these uh, prominence now of beat-making sites. And you're seeing the evolution, right? Like, uh, an artist or a producer like Menace from Manchester, who's, I believe, like a 23-year-old or a 24-year-old, who makes that... Uh, beat in his spare time at home, puts it on one of these beat-making sites. And next thing you know, Designer is taking that beat and making Panda, and others are remixing it, and it becomes a worldwide sensation. Well, it's crazy, because historically in the hip-hop community, you saw, well, they, at least in, with the exception of the likes of DJ Premier, Dr. Dre, Scott Storch, Rick Rubin, and Timberland, the producer wasn't really that popular. It was all about the artist. Yeah, I mean, there was the the exceptions like Timbaland and maybe DJ Premier, you know, with Guru making jazz, uh, making um, uh, Gangstar. Sure. Right? So you had a couple, you maybe had RZA within Wu-Tang Clan, right? You had a couple of those producers who were artists themselves, who were prominent, and you could tell a Timbaland beat um, in, because Timbaland would be on that beat with the artist. You could tell a Primo beat because there was just something... Uh, phenomenally unique about a primo beat and now that's gotten a lot wider sure th this there still is and i think the 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 mambo rappers or the the new gen rappers would love to work with these guys i mean i know the late nipsey hustle always wanted to work with dr dre and never got that chance and and some people do um but you know the producer doesn't necessarily translate into quality and we've seen that with rick rubin working with eminem working with kanye west we've seen some dr dre releases mm. that have gone pear-shaped justin timberlake's latest album with timberland scott storch is trying to come back onto the scene he's working again with 50 cent working again with dr dre to try and recreate that magic from from back in the day but What's happened now is, to your point, is these new platforms have created opportunities for the producer to be the famous one. And we started to see guys like Smoke Perp works with Lil Pump. Sure, you know, we're not fans of the music, but, but he's popular, at least in the U.S. You've got Tay Keith, which blew up massively working with Drake and uh, now working with the likes of, of Eminem on multiple tracks. And Metro Boomin, of course. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because you have Ill Mind, who uh, you know was one of the first who kind of created his beats and put them out, uh, and now he he's actually built a business empire in terms of giving people production tips, right? People will pay to actually see him in person, spend five minutes playing him a number of different beats and getting his feedback on those beats. So it's how those producers are also kind of looking for other ways to extend their reach. So you've got guys like Timberland that are providing these Beats masterclasses and these other platforms, which it's quite cool, actually. So people can upload their music and charge 20 or their beats, charge 20 or 30 dollars. And they, they tag the type of artists that they feel would, would feature well on that track. So Kendrick Lamar and J. Cole or g Easy and and uh, and Jay Z. It's quite interesting because when you tap into that that their mindset there, and uh, if you're big musos like us, it's actually it's quite cool. I sometimes just sit on there and listen to the stuff that's created, and some of it's free to download, which is great because you know somebody uses that track, it blows up. Like we've seen, it does happen these days, and before you know it, those producers are just as popular as uh, as everyone else. And tying that back to our earlier conversation around creativity and licensing, like I can just imagine 
the amount of creativity we would see if artists were able to put, publish their acapella, um, you kind of hip hop or other music uh, digital tracks, and then you could layer them with different beats in a really easy way. Imagine the creative reach or the creativity in general that we would see if artists, if the industry allowed for some of that. And I think we're seeing technology that's structuring. It's almost like that Carlotta Perez kind of philosophy, right? Where we've seen that first industrial wave and now the technology's enabling people to actually build on top of that but I don't know if the industry will get out of the way and able to in, in order to actually enable that to happen. People talk about creative license, but the constraints behind the industry is what's actually preventing that. But we're slowly starting to see cracks in the wall and these tech platforms have emerged. But who knows, maybe this Led Zeppelin case that we've mentioned earlier might pave the way for new ways of thinking in this space where all together, everything with some of the parts creates this great opportunity for people to actually create music that's different and can release it quickly instead of having to spend hours and and huge amounts of money with expensive guys like Dr. Dre, who perfectionists, which we mentioned last week, um, when the music doesn't always get out to the people who really want to hear it. There's, there's a lawyer as well from the U.S. named Larry Lessig, who I'd recommend people kind of look at. I think he's done a TED Talk, but also he's got a lot of prolific writing. He is the one who, who basically pioneered the whole Creative Commons idea where you can kind of publish something with a Creative Commons license and allow people to give you the credit for actually building some of the creative creativity that influenced that. And it'd be really interesting if we could see now technology and the industry come together to actually enable that creative creativity to flourish. All right, Dario, it is Friday, even though people might be listening to this on Sunday or Monday of next week. Uh, what, what, what came out this week that caught your ear? So this week's New Music Friday, a little bit disappointing for me. I don't think there's anything that really captures my attention, but my theory is it's the calm before the storm. Q4, I'm expecting big things, maybe a Kendrick drop, something from TDE. We're waiting for that Kanye album. We're waiting for Eminem. Noticeable mentions, I think, uh, what you've got a Schoolboy Q feature on me with an unknown artist, at least unknown to me, called Wretch. I see Skylar Grey released Angel with Tattoos. That was quite nice. A couple of dance remixes as well, or new releases. I see Dead Mouse is back on the page. There's that new French Montana track with Post Malone and Cardi B. For me, my favorite, about the stuff I've been listening to this week, uh, Joyner Lucas, ADHD, the track titled ADHD. And my guilty pleasure, Farhan, is actually um, The Offspring. The Offspring. Now, now we've heard a lot about uh, rock artists or pop rock artists from the 90s and early 2000s kind of hanging around. What is it about The Offspring that's caught your ear? Well, uh, it was part of the eclectic mix of music I used to listen to growing up from my father. And uh, I see they released an album called Days Go By in 2012. So I thought, well, this will be interesting. Clicked on it, started listening to it, thought it was pretty interesting. Standout track was, uh, I want a secret family with you. Oh, God. Okay. I haven't heard, I actually haven't heard that track. So, <laughs> so maybe I'll give it a listen, but I'm not promising you anything. I actually didn't mind this week's New Music Friday. The, the, the French Montana Post Malone Cardi B track was actually pretty good. I, I played it a couple times. Uh, this morning, and and it's definitely uh, got an interesting hook. It's got it's got some uh, some some bounce to it. So so I enjoyed that. Uh, I'm my guilty pleasure is actually Zayn from One Direction. So uh-huh. he he's got a new track out uh, with an artist called Shahid um, that I'm enjoying. That track 
there's a track actually from Nicki Minaj, who I still maintain is probably one of the most talented female MCs uh, out there. I love her voice. I love her flow. I know we might have differing opinions on that, but she's got a track yeah. called Fendi Bag that that uh, that I enjoyed. Uh, there is also, um, like you mentioned, the Schoolboy uh, Q track that he's uh, he's featuring on, and then I'll 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 show my rock roots and give a shout out to Jimmy Eat World. Uh, I've been a Jimmy, Jimmy I've been a Jimmy Eat World fan, the Secret fan for some time. So so I enjoyed kind of seeing a new Jimmy Eat World track. It's funny because Jimmy Eat World The Middle, which I think was released in two thousand two or three was actually plagiarized by Kelly Clarkson in her song release called Heartbeat, which was released, I think, in 2015. But she actually escaped any legal ramifications from it. But that goes back to the creativity, right? And even when we're seeing new tracks this week from like the likes of J Balvin um, and Pitbull and others, and as I mentioned, Jason Derulo earlier in this conversation, um, it's interesting to see these artists continuing to stand on top of the shoulders of giants, right? Like that whole idea of music coming out and then other artists flipping it, taking a beat, taking a loop, and kind of building on top of that. Great stuff. So thank you for joining us for another episode of Middle School Music. Uh, I'm Farhan Lalji, and you can find me mostly on Twitter on at Farhan Lalji. I'm Dario Devet. You can find me on Twitter on at Dario underscore Devet with a W. And if you want to email us, you can hit us up now on middleschool.music at gmail.com. And if you really want to, you can follow us on Spotify, where we'll be releasing a playlist of the tracks that we love. Um, we'll mix it up, give it that middle school feel, um, and let us know your thoughts. Thanks for listening, everyone. Ciao.